This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome back to another season of Driven by Data, the podcast, powered by our vision group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. So here we are, season three of Driven by Data, the podcast. I'm delighted that you've decided to tune in and rejoin us. We've got some absolutely fantastic content coming your way. So all that's left to say is sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. In order for your organization to make the best possible business decisions and to make the most of your data, you need the very best people. And that's where Orbition Group comes in. We have a proven track record in partnering with some of the largest brands in the world to the most innovative and disruptive startups and everything in between. We go beyond traditional recruitment services. The organizations which we partner with benefit from the added extras that we offer, such as raising your organization's brand awareness to the data and analytics community, providing you with insights into the current market and your competition, benchmarking you against the industry to give you the best chance to successfully attract the best talent. We want to become an extension of your business to identify, engage, attract and retain the best talent possible. If this sounds of interest, please reach out today by visiting orbitiongroup.com. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, season three. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Sarah Schlobaum, who is the head of AI at Kubrick Group. So, Sarah, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm just really delighted I got your name somewhere in the vicinity of actually how it's pronounced. Um, I'm going to use it as examples. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so where we always start, Sarah, as you know, is by asking our guests to give themselves a brief introduction into their background and I guess journey up until this point in time, um, if you'd be so kind. Yeah, sure. Um, so right now I'm head of AI at Kubrick. That means I look after our machine learning engineers. So Kubrick is a, a company that was designed to solve the digital skills emergency. We take fresh young grads, train them up in a variety of data topics, and then place them with clients to get that hands-on experience. I look after the machine learning engineering um, cohorts, which is uh, really important stuff because it's not just um can you build a model, but it's can you actually get it into production, which is something we will come on to later in the podcast, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, I was, uh, well, director level at uh, one of the world's largest banks. I was in financial crime compliance, where we use data science to fight financial crime. We were trying to stop uh, money laundering, terrorist financing, that kind of thing. So it's a big deal. Spent, um, spent some time there, spent some time um, around about financial services, did a graduate scheme at PwC. That's how I kicked off the business career. Um, the way I get into machine learning and AI is that I um, didn't find the Higgs boson for my PhD thesis. Uh, I was a particle physicist. I built some algorithms to try and identify particles. I identified particles, um, but but not the Higgs boson. Somebody else did that. Um, but that's how science works. You find the place it isn't, and then eventually <laughs> somebody finds the place that it is. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Give us a little bit of insight into Kubrick. Then obviously, I know you mentioned there the kind of, you know, the mechanisms by how the business operates, but I guess just more holistically, right? Because I guess your your role at the moment is part 
responsible for the teaching and the training and all the cool stuff around um ml and you know the cohorts of, of ml graduates but then also the consultancy piece right just give us a bit more flavor to that yeah. if you would. What's interesting, because I've now done the full, like the full Kubrick triangle. I've I've been the hiring manager at, at a bank um, who's worked with these undergraduates that that have been out there and and done this kind of training. I've been on a graduate scheme myself a long time ago. Um, I think we treat them a little bit better than I was treated on my graduate <laughs> scheme. I hope so anyway. Um, but now I try to bring that all together and I try to solve the problems that I had as a hiring manager with these graduates being like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I have to teach them this again <laughs> you know they're they're not practical they're not doing things hands-on you know they don't have any business sense um that's what we try to that's what we try to give people at Kubrick that they can't get from from university from online learning that kind of thing is yeah. that that practicality and that business sense through it yeah yeah absolutely makes uh makes perfect sense then so obviously um an interesting route that you've taken um, into, you know, the, the world of artificial in intelligence and, you know, uh, one of the few people that have it in your your job title, which is always cool. But just give us, so I, I know obviously we've spoken offline about this and, you know, had many conversations around, you know, the some of the challenges that the, the, the industry faces, let's, let's say, what do you see when you're, you know, you're working with, these grads and the cohorts and then helping organizations to deliver kind of ML related projects. Um, what's the most common mistake that you see organizations make when they're attempting to adopt machine learning or, you know, jumping feet first into the, to the AI space? Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is, is something you've just done there was you dropped off the engineering part of machine learning engineering. <laughs> yeah. um, you get a lot of very clever data scientists. They hire in fresh PhDs. They can make you a lovely, you know, deep learning algorithm or or whatever. Um, but that doesn't make it into production. And that I think is sort of the biggest challenge um, is that, that so many of these projects just never make it off somebody's Jupyter notebook on their own laptop and into production. Mm. why why is that then what's the big obstacle for, for that happening because it's interesting i mean sorry yeah. to interrupt it's interesting i guess um you know uh, so i had people on the podcast before that have kind of you know said that they believe we've come a long way since you know but what were the stats the stats were like 80 percent of ml projects never made it to production um and uh, i know I had people fairly recently say you know that's definitely got better but obviously it's still a still a challenge so why what's the kind of driving force behind that being the challenge? I think I think it, the challenges fall into sort of two categories. On the one hand, there's the technical side, and on the other hand, there's the, the business side, right? And on the technical side, it's you didn't think about the whole ecosystem. You didn't think about getting it into production. You didn't think about how new data is going to get in. You don't think about how you're going to monitor it, fix it when it breaks. They leave that out of the budget, you know, all sorts of things like that. On the other hand, there's the business side. And especially if you're working in a regulated industry like financial services, um, you're not done when you're done coding, right? There's an awful lot of governance that you have to go to. There's an awful lot of stakeholder engagement. There's a lot of getting the business on board with what you're doing, why, why it's a good investment, why it's not a massive risk. Um, and I've seen an awful lot of models be completely sunk or massively delayed in that governance phase as well. Mm. Yeah. How many, I guess, in terms of your experience, how, how many of these kind of ML projects never, never make it? I mean, on the one hand, you want to fast fail on purpose. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. you do. And so if you, 
if you have a model that's a fun model, but it isn't actually solving a business problem, you you want to fail that as quickly as possible. You don't want to be a, a solution looking for a problem. You don't want to be like, hey, let's use ML because, you know, Gartner said 80% of our competitors are. Um, you want to solve a business problem. And if that's the tool to do it, that's what you want to use. So there's nothing wrong with fast failing. I wish more people would do it. I think the real concern is when people won't give up and they won't fail the project because, you know, we've committed to this and we told the board it would save us, you know, this many millions. And yeah, it turns out it's a bit more complicated than that. Um, mm. I, think I tend to see more sort of delays and overruns in that space. But then at the end of the day, you've got to add business value. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I find this fascinating because I, f I find myself having, it, it seems like irrespective of the topic, this seems to be the conversation. Like, you know, it doesn't matter what, whether it's, you know, we're talking about ML and ML engineering or we're talking about data culture or whatever it is, like the, the overarching thing is the, the business doesn't want that stuff. The business doesn't want your machine learning engineering. It wants the benefits of what that can do for it, right? So getting to the point of value is obviously the whole purpose of this of this thing. Yet um, often it's driven equally. The irony is it's often driven by the business seeing this shiny stuff and going, oh, you know, hang on. You know, I've I read online a Gartner <laughs> article that said this business had done, you know, made 10 million quid by putting an ML model into production. So we want to do machine learning. How, how do you, how, how do you balance the kind of the business and, and the hype then? Cause I think that's kind of, I've been trying to play around with this in my mind of what, where is the middle ground with this stuff? Right. Cause as I said, on the one hand, it's, we all know that it's about getting to the value, but on the other hand, the business is often the one at the start pushing the whole, let's do this. Cause they see the shiny object and, you know, silver bullet and all of those type of phrases. Yeah, I mean, I think you really need to have a business problem to solve and you really need to sort of rule out simpler ways to do it. If you can solve it in Excel, because it's an Excel kind of problem, maybe you do. Um, I, I, I always say you don't need a chainsaw to butter your toast. And that's what <laughs> I think a lot of people tend to do. Like It's cool. It's fun. But like, actually, you could do that much more simply. Um, I think you also do tend to run into a problem of sort of not invented here syndrome a lot. People want to, you know, build it all from scratch and they want to do their own code. You know, if you're that good, you probably ought to be working at Google. Uh, <laughs> not not for me and my business analytics team. Um, so I think that's a that's a big one. And I think that's um, I think that's a big trend where the industry is going. And I think the businesses that adapt that approach are going to get there a lot faster. Because a lot of ML these days is you kind of say like, dear cloud, please may I have some ML and it <laughs> right? Yeah. And and for an awful lot of business cases, that makes sense. And that's already going to fit in your cloud pipeline and, and all of these things. Um, so I think that as the more businesses realize how efficient that can really be, I think that more of that's going to be happening. Mm, yeah. Is there a... I guess across you know your career and then the work that you're doing now with you know the clients that you have at, at Kubrick, is, is there ever kind of a tipping point where you think right okay now you're ready for machine learning? It, does that happen or is, is it a case of that you know there's always a conversation to be had around mach machine learning? 
Yeah. I mean, there's some big, there's some big signs that you're not ready for machine learning, right? If you don't have good data in place, if you don't have good data engineering, if you don't have good data management, then you can't trust your data. And if what you're trying to do is learn from past data to predict something about the future, you need to be pretty confident in that data that you're predicting from. So I would say, yeah, absolutely. Don't think about machine learning until this stuff is ready. If you're going to do supervised learning, which is probably, you know, where you're going to start, you need to make sure that that data, that data is labeled well, um, you know, and just do you have everything in place? It's, it's a bit like being being a chef in a kitchen, right? You've got to you've got to have all your mise en place before you start putting it together in a pan. Yeah, yeah, no, it's um, it's really interesting because as I say, I think that's where a lot of um, a lot of businesses get to, right? You know, they, they hear about these stories, they they listen to whatever they're listening to, and it's like, right, we want to we want to do this, and I think that's why. You know, the last 18 months or so, we've seen this huge resurgence around, you know, data management and, and data governance, because there's probably been that many projects that have jumped feet first into, you know, ML and AI, and they've not quite got out of it what they were hoping for and um, trace their tail back to kind of poor quality data and and and, and that type of, of stuff. Um, I guess, take us to a point then. So you, you know, once you've fixed effectively the foundations is what you're talking about there. You know, if you've got the right foundations in place to make sure that, um, you know, you can do ML accurately and successfully, how do you go about prioritizing from that point? Because often, you know, as you've very likely said several times now, it's about having a business problem to solve. How do you go, you know, how do you prioritize? Okay, we've got all these business problems. Which one is most suited to us proving some value quickly? I think if you can say, if you can do a bit of basic analysis first and say, do you know what, here's something we'd like to try and predict going forward, that's probably the best use case. If you're like, well, here's some data, I don't know what to do with it, then that's not a good use case. I mean, may, you know, maybe go through some unsupervised learning at it if you have the time and budget. Maybe most people don't. Try to pick the most straightforward approach that's going to get you a fairly good return as quickly as possible. Um, and yeah, absolutely don't be afraid to fail projects if they're not showing value. Yeah. Have you seen any kind of trends or, you know, have you managed to put your finger on as to why there are so many organizations out there, you know, trying to do these big innovative ML related projects when they're just not ready for it? I think a lot of the time there aren't technical people in the room making those decisions. And that's not to say that a technical team can't be led by non-technical managers. And, you know, by technical, I mean, can program, knows machine learning, that kind of thing. Yep. But I think it really helps to have someone with that skill set in the room when you're talking about these decisions so that you don't get too far down a project that's directly tied to someone's budget, to someone's ego. Um <laughs> that that then can't fail within the organization. It's much better to engage your most difficult stakeholders up front and get them to try and kill your project, because then if it succeeds, then you know it's going to be a good one. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, it's an interesting train of thought. Piece this together for me then, in regards to the kind of evolution from a kind of technology standpoint, because obviously. Um, you know, the advancements in tech have, have allowed ML, you've very rightly mentioned there, you know, the the kind of ease, the ease that, that it can be done at now with 
cloud and integrations and all that type of, of stuff. But what what's the kind of evolution of that kind of technical tooling journey been in regards to ML? And you know, is there any considerations that organize, organizations should be making in in that space when they're kind of setting out on this journey? Yeah, I mean, I think I think one of you know one of the big shifts we did in programming many many years ago was we stopped sort of writing our own functions and started using packages that were well trained and you know well tested and you know I know if I'm using Scikit-Learn, it's probably not going to fail on me in one of many predictable ways. I think the next step up from that are going to be this sort of generation of pre-trained models. So I think it's going to be the kind of things that you can access from from Hugging Face, you know, Chat Chat GPT. Um, you know, if I'm trying to do a natural language processing model, am I going to train a corpus myself on these 10 documents that I have? Or am I going to use the one that was trained on the entire internet? It probably makes sense to to use the one trained on the entire internet and tweak it, you know, make it make it work appropriately for you. But I think that that's sort of the next level of abstraction up from the Python package is now going to be the packaged model. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Um, and I guess... In terms of piecing all that together with, you know, the business problem, the right tech and tools and stuff like that, how do you, how are you getting into a space of kind of quantifying the ROI on that? Because I know obviously this is probably still the most hotly debated <laughs> topic in in the data analytics and, and wider kind of tech space at the moment around, you know, return on investment and, and all of that type of stuff and putting figures on the value that these this stuff creates. But have you got any hints and tips on a on how that happens from a ML perspective in particular? Yeah, it's true. Like it shouldn't be a complicated decision, is it? It's just benefits divided by cost, but it turns out figuring out what you put in in each of those numerator and denominator gets a bit more complicated. I think um, in terms of the cost, people tend to drastically underestimate that. And that's a problem because then they'll find that their project doesn't deliver as much value as anticipated. And that's a big problem. You have to um, you have to remember that there's both implementation and maintenance. Right. And so I've seen many projects be budgeted for, OK, you know, we've got this team of data scientists to, to get the model implemented and they all leave the project when it ends. Then what? Somebody's got to maintain it. Somebody's got to fix it if it breaks. Somebody's got to retrain it if there's data drift. I think that's a big one. Um, I think they also underestimate the amount of time and effort that goes into to dealing with governance, right? Your models have to still comply with GDPR if you're using them under most circumstances, really. Yeah. Um, so you're going to need to be able to do subject access requests. You're going to need to have privacy impact assessments. You're going to need to be able to you know, do all of this governance to prove that that your model is is treating people fairly and that's a good thing um but there's a cost to that so so all of that has to be important um and the other thing to think about is cloud costs because you know the benefit of cloud is that you pay for what you use the drawback of cloud is that you pay for what you use <laughs> so <laughs> especially if you leave your data scientists possibly I'm guilty of this, um, unattended <laughs> with your cloud say, oh, yes, I'll have this big fancy computer. Let me have all the GPUs. And then yeah, it turns out that's expensive, right? So you need to you need to think about that budgeting and setting those guide rails up front. I think those are big ones. Um, I think, but I think people also tend to underestimate the benefits as well, um, especially if you're talking about the first model to get into production. So sometimes that can be a big hurdle, right? Especially you have to convince stakeholders who think machine learning is some scary black box that nobody's going to be able to understand and the regulators will never approve it. 
It's really not the case, but you're going to have to put in a lot of effort to overcome that the first time. And then once you break ground there, then you can put more and more models in that will get more of that benefit. And if you look at them on paper, well, yeah, that first model didn't get a great ROI. Well, yeah, but it opened up the door to all these other ones. So um, there's lots of there's lots of qualitative benefits to to moving to AI as well. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Do you find that being able to have the AI conversation is a little bit easier than some other conversations because of you know the the hype around it. Let's say, or in terms of you know the the kind of the the the, the obstacle of maybe the whole buy-in conversation, right? You know, um, mm-hmm. a lot of CEOs wanting you know they want to do AI. They want to seem to be doing AI because it's the the sexiest latest thing. Does does it make it easier to have that conversation to kind of get sign off to do this stuff? With that set of stakeholders, yes, which is the one you're <laughs> tell you. I've I've worked in risk areas a lot. Yeah. Let me tell you, risk people can think of all the ways that that models can <laughs> go wrong. And they should. Um, but yeah, um there's there's risk to anything. That's that's why we have entire risk and compliance departments. But uh those those can be the the really difficult stakeholders to get buy-in from that and the um you know, the IT teams. So we literally teach this at Kubrick, right? It's not just, you're not done getting your model in production when you've done the technical side. You know, we we talk to them about, here's what governance is going to look like. Like, here's why you're going to have to, you know, convince everyone that it's compliant with GDPR. Here's how you're making sure it's ethical. Um, but also here's how you convince your IT department that actually this is a good idea and it's worthwhile. Like it, you might be the first one saying, hey, we actually need to go on cloud instead of this creaky on-prem system that's going to fall over if you look at it funny. Um, so sometimes that conversation is a difficult one because there's a lot of change um, and that can be complicated and expensive and people don't always like change. Mm, well, yeah, isn't that true? Um where where do you sit on the whole MLOps piece? Is this just a kind of extension of everything we're already talking about? Because obviously there you're starting to say, you know, production. And I think, you know, I've had people on the podcast before talk about this, you know, as saying that the challenge was always we couldn't get it into production. So we never thought beyond that. It was just the goal was get the thing into production, right? Mm-hmm. Um and then all of a sudden, as we got better at that, it was kind of like, oh, actually, <laughs> there's a lot more to this at this point now in terms of cost, in terms of time, in terms of resource and budgeting and blah, 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 blah. Um, is is that, you know, is that ops piece everything that you've described? And how, how do you think that's kind of um, moving the ML space forward? I think in general, it's good. I think if you take it too far to its extreme, then then you really lose something. So if you take it to, you know, absolutely everything is automated, there's never a human in a loop, that kind of thing, your models aren't regularly reviewed, then I think you're setting yourself up for trouble. If you're doing that, why not just have one of the auto ML systems, right? There are plenty of them out there, they claim to do it all for you, you know, fine, and you're going to get an okay answer out of that. And so if your business is okay with an okay answer, sometimes that makes loads of sense, then go for it. Um, But if you're really looking for, you know, does this work for us? There's there's no substitute for domain expertise and um, you know really sitting and thinking about what features are going to make this model important. What data is missing that I need to go out and get that's going to enhance my model? Um, and MLOps can't do that for you in an automated way. 
arguably mm. it's one of the steps of you know review etc so i think it's really good in principle and really good that it forces people to think about the entire model life cycle um and yeah if you're going to do something twice automate it but at the same time there is no substitute for actually thinking about something sometimes mm. yeah i guess in relation to the work that you have done and, and are doing then how how does that conversation normally play out in regards to you know the advice that you give to organizations based on um you know is where you're at go and get this tool or where you're at you no know, build a team of people that can do this for you how do you distinguish between you know the i guess the the readiness if you like of of a certain type of organization yeah you've got to you've got to look at where you're starting from if you're already you know natively in the cloud then that's a whole lot easier if you're working already with pipelines um if you've got someone that's building their first one that's still on prem it's a little bit creaky that conversation can can be a bit more complicated um and there are situations where you say, yeah, use the low code, no code tools, depending on what you need. I think you probably want to stay away from the ones that don't give you some customizability, some ability to get in there and intervene if if you really need to. Um, but for the most part, there, there aren't points for writing code rather than letting something automate it for you. Mm. At yeah. the end of the day, are you solving the problem better or not? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That makes uh, that makes perfect sense. Does reporting line have a part to play in this for you? Because you talked there about domain expertise. I guess how I'm sure, as with a lot of data teams, there's there's a a challenge there, right, in terms of where it sits and what that focal point becomes, and whether you're trying to tackle enterprise wide problems or specific domain led problems. Um, where in your opinion is it best to kind of have a ml team and kind of their attentions focused yeah that's an interesting question because you do see this sort of difference in different companies some places want to centralize it all and have a set of experts some places want to federate it as much as possible and have you know very self-serve every every team does their own analysis um i don't think there's a right answer to that i think many organizations will just go in cycles and do whatever the last guy didn't. Um, but I think there's there's got to be some balance, right? If you need some data analysis and it's going to go to the central team and sit in a queue for two years, well, you're not going to use that, are you? <laughs> but I've seen that kind of thing happen. Um, if you say, hey, I really need this data ingest, great, you can have it two years from now. <laughs> Nothing yeah. work. And then you get people, you know, doing things back of envelope. Here I've quickly run this in Excel, trust my trend line. Um that kind of thing can happen. Um, but on the other hand, you can't expect absolutely everyone in your organization to be a machine learning expert because it's a specialization. It can be hard. Um so it's it varies based on the sort of size and maturity of the organization, size and maturity of the data level of data governance, you know, if you can trust everything in your pipeline, then you can probably afford to be a bit more hands-off with it. If you really need to be checking that you don't have crazy things happening in your data before it runs to every model, you probably need to have a bit more centralized control over that that kind of thing. Mm, yeah. Do you feel that more businesses than not are in that stage where they probably can't trust everything that's happening with their data and are, you know, probably more or better off focusing on 
fixing some of those foundations first as opposed to the ones that are actually really ready for for ml and getting the, the best out of it yeah i mean i pretty much never trust the data <laughs> <laughs> I, I even before i build a model my first step is usually like my own set of of data analysis checks but then there are sneaky things that happen in the data and this is where domain expertise becomes important is that you can have data that you know by data management standards is complete and accurate and we have transferred that from source exactly correctly but it still makes absolutely no sense mm. yeah. and it could be bad for modeling that kind of stuff so your data governance doesn't check for that um so you can't skip that step even if you have the best data governance the best uh ingestion pipelines mm, yeah absolutely um talk to me about the ethics piece then because obviously this is stuff that we are you know very rightly so more and more airtime and i guess you know back to yeah. your risk and compliance friends that you've um that, that you've uh, referred to um you know I, a problem that you know the security element is is one the ethics piece is 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 another really big concern for a lot of businesses letting this stuff you know run run wild and and, and free how do you tackle that you know what constraints parameters can you put around this stuff to to try and make it as as ethically um you know correct as possible yeah it's tricky i mean well so at kubrick we we start we literally teach ai ethics this is something that we have in the curriculum we spend a couple of days talking about this we talk about some examples of you know where it's publicly gone horribly horribly wrong um and what the implications of that were and i think it's you know that just that awareness piece of knowing that this you know this isn't some theoretical exercise people die if you get self-driving cars wrong hmm. um or you know people don't get jobs or people don't get mortgages i think that just that awareness of no actually hey this this matters um i think it's really important and it's an interesting trade-off between um sort of checking for bias and maintaining privacy because on the one hand you want to make sure that you're not biasing against any protected characteristics on the other hand you have to have that data to check against it um and so where are we going with that i'm not entirely sure laws and regulations have kept up with that yet i think mm -hmm. it's kind of up on you know on, on us to say we need to we need to think about that in advance so you know you can do some basic things like literally just check that you're not making it worse <laughs> if you have an imbalance in your data are you making it worse afterwards would it make sense to um check that in your different groups just um you know avoid some of the common traps that that people fall into make sure as much as possible you're using explainability tools like shap you know so you can you can run some algorithms to say here's the most important features in my model and here's the effect that it has on the model that actually goes a really long way towards convincing stakeholders because especially if it makes stuff that makes sense like okay i missed a payment recently my credit score goes down that makes sense. That's how we do credit scores. Yeah. If it's something like, you know, Sarah has a bunch of cats, then probably that shouldn't have an effect on my credit score. And if yeah. that's coming up as the most important feature in the model, somebody needs to challenge that. Mm. And yeah. now that's not to say you can't use protected characteristics sometimes. Sometimes it matters, you know, especially in marketing situation, which is a bit more low stakes. Like if I want to buy women's shoes, you should probably know that I'm a woman to market me women's shoes um that that's fine but especially when we're talking about things you know medical information um there's some scary issues out there yeah yeah absolutely um 
you talked there about you know using certain examples um as as you're teaching i'm curious just to kind of know which ones you normally lean on uh yeah so my favorites well i don't want to i don't want any of the major companies to sue me if they say that um we talk about a self-driving car example um we talk about a major online retailer that had a recruitment bot um that selected against women Mm -hmm. so it trained on past history which hired mainly men so it actually was finding things in cvs like president of the women's chess club and discounting them based on that um, which is quite scary. Um, there was a chatbot that was released a few years ago that they wanted to train on the internet. Um, and apparently they never met the internet because 4chan got to it and it got super racist and offensive. And yeah, that, that was not great. Um, we've talked about some really unfortunate situations where, um, labeling systems. So like if you get your, uh, photos automatically labeled, um, it doesn't do well with darker skin tones. And one of them was labeling black people as gorillas, which was super offensive. Wow. And mm. they haven't even fixed that. They just shut that off. Um, and, you know, and, and I actually know someone whose passport photo kept getting rejected because of basically the same thing. Mm. And when it's personal like that, you're like, oh, yeah, that really matters. Like, he's a lovely guy. Why did he have to go through that? Mm. That's one of the reasons why it's so important to have a diverse group of people in the room when yeah. you're making these decisions, because, you know, you're going to say, hey, wait a minute, that's going to affect me. Um, and that matters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you, I was obviously wanting to finish on the diversity piece anyway, because I know, you know, massive advocate and, you know, part of the women in data group and, you know, all the great work that um, that, that group does. Um Talk to us then about how you, I guess, how you tackle the challenges within the industry around diversity and, and inclusion and things like that, because I'm fully in agreement with you. And I know we've had various back and forths on LinkedIn on these topics, because it's, you know, not just what somebody looks like. It's, you know, the whole diversity of experience and thought and perspective as well that go into making a truly diverse workforce. But um keen just based on you know your involvement in in those types of, of groups kind of you know any practical steps that organizations could and should be doing to to try and you know create a more diverse and, and, and balanced workforce i guess yeah absolutely i mean a lot of it starts with the job description so um you know there there is some there's just some differences in how men and women respond to language based on gender. We're talking about broad averages here, right? But if you tend to say you need to be a genius, you need to be a rock star, you need to be a ninja, that tends to put women off because women don't tend to rate themselves that highly. So don't do that in your job descriptions. There are various things that you can run through and just check, is this gender biased or not in yeah. a sort of automated way? Just do that. Um, women tend to say, you know, I need to meet all of these job requirements. So you've got a long list of bullet points um, and you're saying I need to hit absolutely every one of these. Well, usually it's a wish list, right? So if, if employers can be much more explicit about here's what's actually required for the job and here are like, we'd like you to have some of these, please. Or, you know, be realistic about what three to five years experience means. If you've got like 2.75, that's probably okay. Mm. Yeah, that kind of thing, I think, um, you know, and, and statements about um, that, you know, 
we welcome diversity, we welcome salary negotiations, things like that. These are all fairly evidence-based ways to, to just sort of improve. I think, but realistically, you have to have the right culture in your organization. You have to have diversity at the top of your company. And, and most companies are still failing at that <laughs> um, pretty badly. Mm. And if you can't see it, you can't be it. You know, you have to, but that's why women in data and, and, and events like this do such a good job because, you know, okay, are you getting your face out there? Cause a woman, you know, I don't, I don't love being <laughs> the token female sometimes, but at the same time, it, it would have mattered to younger me to see me. That's, you know, Hey, I'm here. You have a female guest now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, a hundred percent couldn't, couldn't agree more. I think, um, as I've been fairly vocal about i think unfortunately still a lot of organizations and, and not and not maliciously but you know they they confuse diversity and, and representation right and um you know I've, the, the amount of organizations that we speak to that turn around and say and you know we we'd love to hire a female and you kind of look around and go why would a female want to join here <laughs> you know it's just yeah it's because as you said you know representation does matter but um of course but you know if if a lot of organizing organizations unfortunately also are you know ticking boxes because they know that's the thing that they need to, to be doing or to be seen to be doing and and then you get into this place of they just think it's oh well right we need to we need to you know we need to hire a woman now so we'll go out and we'll hire a woman it's like oh, no it doesn't work like that it's not <laughs> that easy work for you yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. the question. yeah um yeah, you know, because it's it's not just diversity for a tick box sake, it's diversity and inclusion, right? And if I'm if I'm looking around the place and I'm the only one that looks like me, some days that's tough, you know, mm -hmm. and, and 99 times out of 100, I just power through it. But, you know, God, here's here's another Zoom call where I feel like the outsider. Mm. Yeah, well, that's that's a shame. But I think hopefully, you know, we're making strides in the right direction that the 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 noise around this topic is as loud as it ever has been which is fantastic right because the more noise we can make about this stuff the 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 more likely we are to convince people to change or you know at least look at the way they try to tackle this problem which you know ultimately needs to be the starting point right so yeah, um it's fun it's interesting it can be a well-rewarding career women shouldn't shy away from it just because <laughs> just because there aren't any others it's yeah yeah and it's it's also you know worth noting that um you know as as our industry matures um not everybody needs to be an ml engineer right you know there's a lot of other uh more business focused roles you know you're getting all sorts of funky job titles now right you know like translator or the data journalist or all this other stuff yeah. that's kind of coming out there so i do get suspicious when women get pushed into the less technical roles though that's yeah. the trend that i've yeah, noticed. Yeah. Even, even when women do get into data they get pushed into the sort of oh we need you to go chat to people about data roles because they may be better communicators True. That's interesting. But, but yeah. they may be awesome in the technical stuff too. So don't do that automatically. Yeah. yeah if that's no, what they want to do, if that's where the skill set lies, awesome, more power to them. But you know, make sure that you're not accidentally pushing away from the more technical side. Yeah. Yeah. Creating another tick box. Yeah, absolutely. That makes perfect sense. Well, to bring it all back together then, Sarah, just um, I guess give us kind of, you know, a list of 
hints, tips, tricks for the audience to take away in terms of, you know, if you're on this ML journey or you're thinking about getting on this ML journey, what are the key things that you really need to to think about before you jump feet first into it and get it horribly wrong? (laughs) Um, Don't hire a bunch of data scientists before you have your data engineering sorted out. (laughs) Um, Make sure that you engage your difficult stakeholders as early as possible. Uh, Don't be afraid to fast fail projects. Um, make sure you think about the whole life cycle of the project, not just getting into production the first time. Yeah, perfect. Well, what a great way to finish. Um, so look, Sarah, thank you so much for giving us your time. We know you're very busy. You've got some more, uh, some more students to go and teach ML ethics to now. So, um, yeah, we'll leave you to do that. (laughs) Perfect. Thanks for your time. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow our Bishon Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like, and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week.